You don't have to go very far to see the impact of the car on our physical environment. We live in a world of parking lots and garages, delivery vehicles, drive-throughs, and all the markings and devices used to manage pedestrian and vehicular traffic. We use our cars for long road trips and short hops to the dry cleaners. Our cars are school buses, mobile offices, and even the occasional dining room. Many of us even choose where to live based on how convenient it is to drive to our jobs or other destinations. That world I've just described is based on two simple things. That the car we use burns fuel, and that we're in control of it all the time. We've already looked at what happens to the car itself and its industry when that changes. But what happens to the world we live in? This is one of those eras that we're in that we will look back on and realize, wow, that was a huge amount of change coming very quickly. And you're right in the middle of it right now. I'm Sam Grobart, deputy editor at Goldman Sachs, and this is The Future of Four Wheels, a mini-series from the Exchanges podcast on what the electrification and automation of the car will mean for industries, investors, and the economy. This is part four of our four-part series, how the car of the future will change our world. Quick disclaimer. We're going to be referring to real companies, real brands, and real names throughout this episode, but none of it should be misconstrued as any endorsement of any company or person, and certainly none of it should be considered investment advice from Goldman Sachs. Okay, let's get back to it. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, over in the north campus of the University of Michigan lies M-City, a research and development facility that is basically a giant lab for the future of mobility. It's where researchers, automakers, telecom companies, lawyers, government officials, really anyone who's connected to transportation, come together and try to figure out the future. But what's maybe more interesting about M-City is that it includes, well, a, a fake town. It's about 30 acres but it was built to represent the real world. So it looks like, almost eerily like, our towns and communities across the U.S. You know, we've got nine signalized intersections and crosswalks and street lights and stop signs and everything that you're used to. It's regular infrastructure, just minus people. That's Greg McGuire, the managing director of M-City. He's in charge of all the different ways the research facility can test EVs and autonomous vehicles, or AVs. To do that, He's got a pretty cool box of tricks. You know, we've got a, a robotic deer that's kind of coming out between the cornrows and crossing the, the road. And the AV needs to be able to, to handle that, see that, stop, don't hit the deer. Do you actually have a robotic deer? We actually do have a robotic deer. One of the latest projects Greg's been working on in M-City is a new way of charging EVs, one where the charging happens while you're on the move. Late last year, an Israeli uh, company, Electrion, approached us about installing and building a, a wireless charging road in Michigan, which would be the longest, kind of biggest stretch in, in the U.S. ever put together. You know how some of the latest smartphones can charge wirelessly? Same principle here. Coils of wire on the underside of a car can come into brief contact with coils of wire embedded in a road and create a transfer of energy, or charging. I mean, the irony of this system is that it's it doesn't look any different than a normal roadway. It's all underneath, so it's the road got a lot smarter, but it got smarter under underneath. But what that opportunity 
I think, offers for public transit, for reducing battery size and pack weight on public buses, for smaller microtransit systems, for logistics, for FedEx UPS drivers as they're delivering packages in your office building and they're sitting on one of these sites outside, you know, their vehicle can be recharging. And so can we use fewer materials then on the actual vehicle in the future? Can we put more of that intelligence into the road network? We don't need to electrify every square mile of road in America. A tiny number to start with would have a huge impact. One of the biggest obstacles to EV adoption is something that's called range anxiety. The idea that people are nervous their EV could run out of power while they're on a drive. But with this kind of charging technology, your car could be charging while it's moving. Deploy enough of these kinds of roads on well-trafficked routes, and range anxiety becomes a thing of the past. One place where Greg sees the technology being incredibly useful is in public transit. Buses, for example, could effectively become wireless streetcars, getting charged along its route, but still with the maneuverability of a traditional vehicle. And if you can charge along the way, well, there are other benefits too. And so can we downsize the battery pack that's on that bus? Can we uh, use less material and get a, a slightly cheaper bus? So now you're also making the vehicle lighter, which makes it require less power. It does. Which in turn, you know, so there's this sort of virtuous cycle that seems to be happening there. It, it also adds safety. The kinetic energy is a, is a key uh, component, the key component in terms of survivability of a crash. And so if we make our vehicles heavier as we electrify them, we will almost certainly move the safety needle in the wrong direction if we don't do other things at the same time. There are so many ways the future of transport can evolve, and M-Cities where many of those questions are getting answered. But there's another set of questions to consider about our infrastructure and our transit networks. Who's going to build them? And who's going to pay for them? It's a astonishingly complicated question and a area of conversation that is occurring with a overwhelming majority of stakeholders who are all contemplating what does the future of mobility look like? And then importantly, what does that mean for our built environment? That's Chris Elmore. Chris works on the Public Sector and Infrastructure Group in Investment Banking here at Goldman Sachs. This transition from fuel to electricity, from humans to autonomy, they have major implications for how cities, states, and even countries plan their infrastructure investment for the future. And that future for all these agencies is a long-term one. Any new road or bridge or rail line that you build today will likely be there for decades, if not a century. So governments are only at the very beginning of what will be a long transition as more EVs and AVs take to the roads. We'll use a baseball analogy. We're in the first or second inning in what may be an overtime game. One thing that will drive the kinds of changes governments pursue will be how quickly consumers adopt more electric and autonomous vehicles. In order for their benefits to really be felt and taken advantage of, you do need a critical mass of new technology on the road. You think about highways, that ability to have two to three times higher safe throughput capacity only occurs depending on different models when you're north of 80, 90, 95% penetration of autonomous vehicles. So only a few human drivers really mess up the computers. And when that 
tipping point occurs, whether that's five years from now, 30 years from now, or 50 years from now, also impacts decisions today. But it's hard to predict when that occurs, which creates uncertainty about investment decisions. Timing is a big X factor in these kinds of decisions. But then there's the question of how do you fund all of these big changes? And that has more to do with the internal combustion engine than you may think. See, historically, it's been the case that, particularly in the U.S., most spending on transportation infrastructure has been funded through taxes on fuel. This gets trickier, though, if we're all driving EVs. The more people that are driving electric vehicles, the less gas tax you have. So there are two simultaneous challenges of, one, identifying what the new streams of revenue will be that are available to make these generational investments in our infrastructure. And then two, getting the broader consensus around, is that going to be tolls? Is it going to be taxes? If it's taxes, which taxes are they? These are difficult questions. What's more, infrastructure has another challenge. While it's essential to get right, it's also kind of boring. It's hard for users to be excited about that, and it's hard for politicians. They're like, so basically you're telling me during the entirety of my term, life's going to be miserable for my constituents. I don't get to cut a ribbon, and the person succeeding me gets the credit for now the functioning infrastructure. Politically, why should I be for this? Even if you understand why it may be the right 100-year decision in your two to four to six-year window that you're thinking about your job, it can be really hard and scary. When talking about infrastructure, it's important to note what's traditionally been handled by governments and what's been managed by the private sector. Here in the U.S., we've settled on a model in which the public sector builds and maintains roads and mass transit while private companies have been in charge of things like electrical grids and the sale and distribution of gasoline. We can quibble. Many rational people can have differences on whether that's the right allocation or not, but that's the allocation Here that we, we yes. generally have today. And actually a large part of my work here at Goldman is structuring and arranging exactly these public-private partnerships and helping, whether it's governments identify for new pieces of infrastructure for which they don't have prior expertise, maybe they want to partner with the private sector to help do some component of design, financing, operations, maintenance of that, or work with the private sector to help rehabilitate existing infrastructure projects. Take gas stations, for example. It wasn't necessarily a given that oil companies would own and operate roadside facilities to sell their fuel. It could have been that car companies would own gas stations to provide a service to their customers, or convenience stores would use it as a way to attract travelers to their business. But in an EV era, all bets are off. We don't know yet for electric vehicles whether it will be the car manufacturers, the way that Tesla has been building out their charging infrastructure, whether it may be retailers. So Walmart has entered into arrangements with some large charging providers to provide charging in some of their parking lots, or if it may be electric utilities that are looking at it as a way to either provide a service or to sell additional electricity. To get a perspective on these issues from another part of the world, I went about as far as I could go and called up my colleague Nicole Bevan, who heads up infrastructure for Australia and New Zealand at Goldman Sachs Investment Banking in Sydney. She pointed out that Australia is different than most other countries in one very important way. 
you will hear this statistic often in the news in Australia, which is we are the only advanced economy in the world other than Russia who doesn't have fuel efficiency standards. And so we have this uh, issue where car manufacturers bring their gas guzzling cars to Australia and, and, and amazingly cars here in, in this country use sort of 20 percent more fuel than, than in the average U.S. car. There is a plan to introduce a national fuel efficiency standard, but in the meantime, the current circumstances have led to a lower adoption rate of electric vehicles. Less than 4% of vehicles in Australia are electric, compared to a global average of 9%. But government-led infrastructure projects are looking to change that. There's a national EV strategy being rolled out. So all of the states are being pushed by the federal government to have EV targets. And I think importantly, because people in Australia, despite being very urbanised, always have this view that they'll, they might need to drive 600 kilometres, um, there is a plan in place to have a national charging network. And so every 150 kilometres on highways around the country, there will be a charger so that people aren't left stranded. There continue to be discounts and subsidies uh, to try and push people to, to uptake an electric vehicle. So we have the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is a government-owned entity um, investing in the transition, who are providing green car loans. And then state governments are providing things like access to express lanes, uh, subsidies on, on electric vehicles. Certainly we see good support and good initiative from a lot of the corporates um, and, and funds who own our transport infrastructure in this country. But I think the greatest push we see at the moment is probably from the government, who are really well aware of the fact that Australia has been quite slow to adopt in its cities this transition to electrification. Big changes are clearly in store for our highways, charging networks and transportation budgets. But I also wanted to know how all of these changes actually affect the cities and towns we live in. What will it mean to be a driver or a pedestrian in places shaped by EVs and AVs? Autonomous cars may travel more densely and safely on highways, and EVs don't have any emissions, but a bunch of cars, even self-driving, electrified ones, clogging a downtown intersection is still a traffic jam. Do we need to rethink what kinds of vehicles go where? Chris Elmore again. Does that create the idea of, oh, maybe we should transition people out of their cars at the urban periphery and find more effective ways of last mile transportation, whether it's a bike, whether it's a scooter, whether it's just getting on our two legs and walking, that would move cars out of city centers, particularly if non-human driven cars work even more poorly inside of cities. And not to say that technology won't improve, but you may have a state of the world where both what autonomous vehicles are good at is the long distance driving outside of the city. So maybe we reconfigure cities to have fewer vehicles and more you know, personal mobility options. And I guess that speaks to the kinds of um, sort of low traffic or zero traffic zones that you get. And you've seen that in Europe, certainly, mm -hmm. and in the UK. And of course, we're sitting here in New York City right now, which is also grappling with its own congestion pricing plan, right? But that you have to do something to reduce just the, the vehicles that are coming directly into it. reminds me, actually, of like, if you go to like a medieval city somewhere and you can't go, you have to park down at the bottom of the wall. And, and, and walk, walk in. in. Because there's just no other... Right. There's no other way to access it. Right. 
There's another key example of an industry that will be changed by electrification and autonomy, and in turn, that industry changes the world we live in. Freight. Autonomous systems could manage a long convoy of multiple trucks with far less space between them than human-led semis require. And so can you do truck caravanning, where you might have one driver in the front and then seven vehicles that can safely follow, you know, nose-to-nose behind them to do a 500-mile run, and then you split back up to do independent driving at the end. Just that alone, taking seven... 18-wheel semi-trucks goes from a mile of road space to 500 feet. So your road capacity, again, can go up massively from some of these early partial adoptions. On the electrification side of things, it would be far better for the freight industry to move to zero-emission vehicles, not only because it would reduce pollution, but it would also replace fuel costs with far cheaper charging costs. But Chris points out how that evolution has some resulting knock-on effects, infrastructurally speaking, and things can get complicated. And so then you go back to, okay, we're shifting all of our transportation system into being electric. We're then shifting that plus the existing electric grid to renewables. And now we're going to make some of the transportation significantly more energy intensive. Well, it solves our road infrastructure problem, but it now exacerbates our electric grid infrastructure problem. It's an important view to keep in mind. New technologies can be massively effective solutions to one set of challenges, but that doesn't mean they don't bring a new set of challenges as well. It's been said that, over its lifespan, the average car is parked 95% of the time. So if cars can start to reliably drive themselves, Couldn't they be doing other things when we're not using them? Chris sees rideshare companies as an almost prototype for an autonomous future. If you look at the cost per mile of a trip for a TNC today... Uh, I'm sorry, what? uh, One of the transportation network companies, TNCs. Oh, okay. Rideshare companies. Yeah, rideshare companies. Okay. And you say, you know, what's that cost per mile? And right now, it's not dissimilar to owning your own vehicle, depending on how much you drive and amortization of your vehicle cost versus gas and all that, but relatively comparable to owning your own vehicle. If you take the driver out and it's now an autonomous vehicle, it's on par or less expensive than mass transit. Wow. And so you can easily imagine a world where, you know, kind of this dispatched autonomous vehicles becomes a majority of how people get around. And many two-car households might, you might still keep one car for, you know, all the stuff with the kids and you have to go do things. But for your commute to work, the errands that you're running, it's less expensive to pull up an app, get an autonomous vehicle, take you where you need to go, and then bring that back. So what does that mean for car ownership? What does that mean for how many non-people trips are occurring because there's never a perfect balance of the trips that are... When you get dropped off, it's not like someone's waiting there to be picked up. Exactly. And it finally raises interesting questions on what businesses are indirectly materially subsidized by transportation improvements that, though benefit the entire community 
to the extent that you have a lower and lower proportion of roadway users being individual humans driving their own cars, and instead businesses who are using that to deliver packages or to help get people from point A to point B and are making a profit from that, is that a component in how people are thinking about what the revenue generation model in a post-gas tax world looks like for transportation. So in the future, our roads and highways may be funded less from tolls on individual drivers and more on taxes on that burrito that an AV dropped off at your house. Let's take a step here from physical infrastructure to digital. Earlier, M-City's Greg McGuire cited that more than 80 million cars in the U.S. are now connected vehicles, able to send and receive data wirelessly. That makes them not only vehicles, but now something new, something Greg calls data engines. When we usually think about traffic data and infrastructure, we often go to the proverbial camera or sensor on a light pole in a city. But that's a fairly passive, not super intelligent system. It just collects everything it detects and uploads massive data sets to the cloud. But now we have cars with cameras and radar and LIDAR and AI-enabled supercomputers. Alongside the passive system on light poles, we now have a fleet of hyper-intelligent data scouts that can do way more than measure traffic light times. I'm actually putting AI out there looking for specific use cases that I'm having trouble with. I think Tesla had a famous example of, you know, uh, mistaking Burger King signs for stop signs. And, you know, Burger King, of course, made a hilarious commercial, like, ah, oh, the AI is so smart, it knows what you want. Right. But yeah, the answer to fix that was, we need to go get a lot more photos and videos of Burger King signs and stop signs in all weather conditions and in all kinds of driving conditions and in all parts of the country. And then that's got to go back into our, our data set that we're training. You know, somebody's got to label all this and say, that's a stop sign. Nope, that's a Burger King sign, et cetera, et cetera. There's too much data to be able to kind of collect everything and send it back at once. So you can ask the vehicle to go look for those cases where you think maybe that's a stop sign or maybe that's a Burger King sign. Send it back to us and we'll figure it out. And so I think these data collection systems are going to become much more like iterative process engines of the future. Uh, and the ability to kind of task a system with collecting things that you need to make your training data set for your AI models better will change and it will iterate. It's a rethinking of how we approach cities, traffic, and infrastructure. And Greg thinks it will require a new way of organizing the key players who can make a difference. Historically, we've, we've had people building the, the vehicles and we've had people building the infrastructure. And those two groups didn't do a lot of communicating and interfacing. And I think the modern kind of transportation systems, what I'm seeing from our Department of Transportation right now uh, and from industry is a realization that these things need to work as a collective. They need to work in, in conjunction. Cities and towns of the future often call to mind images of flying cars and elevated monorails, but the reality may be more subtle. Maybe our future infrastructure looks relatively similar to how it is now, but with invisible layers of electricity and data. Perhaps our cities have fewer cars, but more electrified mass transit or even some new personal transportation device that's yet to be invented. And further outside our cities, might people be willing to live farther away if an AV can drive them to work? What does that mean for real estate, for retail, 
If you can summon an autonomous car for the same price as mass transit, do you even own a car? Or does mobility become more of a service you subscribe to than a car you purchase? Here's another question that hasn't been answered yet. In an autonomous future, who's liable in a collision? And how do you ensure that? Self-driving cars promise to be far safer than human-controlled ones, but that doesn't mean accidents won't happen. The technology behind autonomy is rapidly advancing, but the legal and financial frameworks it requires may have some catching up to do. Those are just some of the questions worth asking, and I haven't even gotten to the big one. I'll leave that to Chris Elmore. I think one interesting question is um, how long it will take before it's illegal for humans to drive on public roads. Already, by most metrics, not all, but by most metrics, computers are already safer drivers than humans. And so I don't know if it's 10 years or 50 years, but somewhere down the road, again, once we're trying to get to that tipping point when there's a massive change in the efficiency of our infrastructure and a real realization that the, the, the humans are the dangerous ones, eventually it's going to become illegal for humans to drive is my kind of guess. Over the course of this miniseries, we've taken a close look at how the car has played a massive role in defining our world. It's changed how we built our cities, towns, and everything in between. It's been a symbol of personal freedom and even a part of our identity. It has created one of the largest, most ubiquitous industries the world has ever seen, and it has been a rolling laboratory for some of the most advanced technologies we've been able to develop. The conversations we've had with our guests over these four episodes could be boiled down to one thought. It's that this transformation is more than just a technological shift or an industrial transition. When people in the future look back on epochal shifts in business, technology, and society, this will be one of the key examples. And when they want to start at the beginning of this revolution, they'll be looking at where we are right now. We won't stop covering this evolution. If you'd like to stay on top of our latest analysis on this topic and many others, please subscribe to Briefings, the weekly Goldman Sachs newsletter. Go to gs.com to sign up. This podcast is the result of many people's hard work and insights, not all of whom were heard on our episodes. We'd like to extend a very special thanks to Emily Baker, Catherine Bell, Jen Berman, Sarah de Alameda, John Dietry, Jane Dunleavy, Colin Farquhar, Wolfgang Fink, Kate Fortek, Toshia Hari, Katie Kaufman, Jane Kim, Azen Kasumi, Brian Mahan, Julia McGonigal, John McGinnis, Adam Minoli, Brian Rooney, Connor Sink, Sarah Tiffany, and Brad Young. Our theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura. The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each name of a third-party organization mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is used here strictly for informational and identification purposes only and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights between any such company and Goldman Sachs. 
The content of this program does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient and is provided for informational purposes only. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program or to its recipient. Certain information contained in this program constitutes forward-looking statements, and there's no guarantee that these results will be achieved. Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide updates or changes to the information in this program. Past performance does not guarantee future results, which may vary. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this program and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. <laughs>